You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com.
All right, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. If you guys want to find your way back to your seats and open your Bibles on your way there, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want some coffee or pastries, feel free to grab those on your way. If you don't own a Bible and need one, we have some hardback black Bibles at the table back there. Feel free to grab one of those. You're on page 979 in the hardback black Bibles. And uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 18 through 24 is where we're going to uh, preach from today, so you can work on finding that right now. Today is our last sermon in our Ephesians series. So we've been spending the last several months in Ephesians since we launched in March, and we've been working on together, this is the title of the series, The Foundations of Faith. We've been wanting to develop a strong foundation of faith together throughout this series. And in our first sermon in this series, maybe you'll remember I talked about the Frank Lloyd Wright Hotel in Japan, the second imperial temple that was built there. And I told you about how he had this inventive strategy for a foundation, but in the end, it ended up being a very shallow foundation that could not hold the weight of the hotel, so it began to sink, and they had to rebuild it several years later. And really, as we think about even that imagery, we want to build a strong foundation that can support the sort of gospel renewal that we are after together, both for ourselves and through us in our community. And so we've been laying these foundation stones throughout the series. We've looked at how important it is to understand our identity in Christ together. We've talked about what it means to live in unity together and also how we have our lives reflect the love that we have for Jesus. And in today's passage, Paul is giving this final blessing to the church in Ephesus. And in it, we see his desire for them to persevere in faith. To, to keep the faith that they have from the start. And that really is our desire as well, that our faith would endure. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read from Ephesians 6 together, and uh, hopefully we'll see how God can help us to endure in our faith as well. So Ephesians 6, 18 through 24 says this, "'Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Go and grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. And here as we come to the end of this Ephesian series, we do want a faith that lasts. We want a faith that perseveres and endures the test of time. And so we know that doesn't happen on our own. That happens through even now the preaching of your word as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And so we're asking that you would help us here right now by your spirit. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By a show of hands, I'd love to see who here in the room 
knows of someone who has at some point in their life stepped away from the faith that they may have claimed at one point or grew up with, either maybe through apathy or rejection. Who knows someone who has done that? Okay, now again, by a show of hands, who knows someone who um, has stayed with the faith, but, but it might be in a way that you might call it more religious than relationship, and you might think that as they get older, they seem to be a bit curmudgeonly, and it doesn't seem like they've really understood the love that Jesus actually has for them or the world. How many, how many have seen people grow old with that around religion? Yeah, and now the last question I'll ask you is who here wants to know Jesus, the love that Jesus has for them, and to remain in his love throughout, a li- throughout their lifetime? Who wants that for their lives? And I'll just say, just if, if you don't feel like you have to raise your hand even on that question, even in asking it, um, I recognize there are some of you who have known a lot of those curmudgeon-like religious types, and because of that, you might wonder whether Jesus does have love for you or what that does look like. And we just want you to know that you're welcome here to even process that with us. We don't want that curmudgeonly religious faith either. We want real relationship with Jesus. But one of the things I'm trying to even draw out is that when at some point in our lives, we may claim a faith in Jesus, a love for Jesus, and we want that to last. But we've also watched as others have drifted from it. And so one of the things we naturally ask ourselves, well, how do we do that? How does it happen in our lives that we remain in Christ's love? And so today's sermon is an attempt to answer that question to address that question together, because from what I can tell, Paul here at the end of Ephesians, he has that concern for the church in Ephesus as well. He wants them to persevere in their faith. And so the message of our sermon together today is just simply this. We persevere in faith by holding fast to our first love. We persevere in faith by holding fast to our first love. And when I say first love, it's not about the first love necessarily in order of time. We're not talking about like the high school sweetheart here, okay? So this isn't about the first love chronologically. This is first in terms of priority, our highest love, the most important love we have in our lives. But we persevere by fixing our eyes on Jesus and holding fast to his love. And we'll see that throughout the text through an outline with really three ways that we persevere in faith. The first is to pray in the Spirit. Second, tell stories of God's faithfulness. And third, keep your eyes on Jesus. First, we pray in the Spirit. After Paul gives this vivid description of the armor of God that we looked at last week, he launches into talking about prayer. And he gives this short exhortation on prayer in verses 18 through 20. Now, Paul doesn't see the armor of God as disconnected from this call to prayer, but in many ways, the entire armor of God is put on through prayer. It's wrapped in this prayer discipline that Paul wants for us. And if you look with me at verse 18, Paul transitions from that last piece of armor, and here he begins this call to prayer. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Now, there are three things I want to say about verse 18 here and its connection to our endurance in faith. The first is that Paul wants us to persevere through prayer. This is primarily where I'm getting the emphasis on perseverance for the sermon today, the enduring of faith that Paul wants for us, because right here at the end of his letter, Paul has perseverance on the mind. He says to them, keep alert, persevere, And praying for the saints, praying at all times, praying in the Spirit, 
These are all part of how we persevere in the faith. Second, Paul wants us to pray at all times. There are times when we want to have some organized prayer, some planned prayer, and there's many examples of that. We gather together as a church, for anyone who wants to, every Wednesday at noon over Zoom to pray what we're calling frontline prayers together, asking God to be at work in our church family. Or you might have planned prayer times throughout your day, maybe in the morning or at noon or at night. Maybe you have a prayer journal. There's maybe these organized ways that you pray. And these are all really good ways for us to pray. But Paul doesn't want us to limit it to that. He, he doesn't want us to limit our prayers to pre-planned or organized times. This is prayer at all times. Prayer becoming like the air that we breathe, always in communication and in communion with God. The third thing we see is that Paul wants us to pray in the Spirit. Regular and ongoing prayer is possible because our prayers don't happen on our own. We don't do it all on our own power. We pray in the Spirit. And if you want to learn to pray at all times, then it starts by asking God's Spirit to help you, trusting that He will. Ask God to give you eyes to see the spiritual realities of the world around you. Trust that God's Spirit will help you to learn to pray at all times. Some of us might be intimidated by prayer because maybe you haven't done it as much as you've seen others do it. And when you hear others pray out loud, it's as if they know some other type of language of prayer and you might feel intimidated by that. But let me just say this, whether you've prayed a lot or you've prayed just a little, prayer in the Spirit is not the same as praying with eloquent words. They're not the same thing. In fact, sometimes our eloquence in prayer gets in the way of praying in the Spirit because we're praying in our own power and praying so that we can sound good. So for all of us, God is calling us to slow down, be mindful, trust God's Spirit in our prayers. If you are in Christ, then God's Spirit fills you and He will help you pray. Trust that He will. Prayer will feel like a burdensome task, if it is only just a task to accomplish. If prayer is something that you just put on your checklist, then that will not actually help you persevere in the faith because that's not prayer in the spirit in the way Paul has in mind. But if prayer is understood as communication with God, it makes sense why it would happen in the spirit and why it would happen at all times. God's spirit aids us in our prayer and communication with God helps us to remain in relationship with him. If you think about even human relationships and you want to maintain relationship with people that you love, if you think about some of your most intimate relationships, communication is a regular part of that. My wife Megan and I talk to each other every single day about any number of different things. But if we go too many days without a conversation that goes beyond the practical and surface level details, then we start to feel the distance, even if we're around each other all the time. If our worship of God is about relationship and not religion, doesn't it make sense then that the same principle would be true? If we want to keep relationship with God, we need to be in communication with Him. And prayer is just simply that, communicating with God in all sorts of different ways. That means prayer in the Spirit, genuine connection with God, real conversation with Him. Now, it doesn't mean you can't plan ahead. Planned things can be helpful. Again, if I use the parallel of my marriage with Megan, we have four young kids, and if we want some times of connection, we need to plan ahead. We need to plan some date nights. We need to figure out ways to make that possible and make that happen. So, so planning is not the problem. Anyways, in many ways, planning is actually a pathway to real connection. 
but it has to be more than just checking a box. And here at the end of Ephesians, Paul is not only asking for prayer, which is the context in which he's exhorting them to pray. He's saying, pray for me, pray for all the saints, be in prayer, make supplication for one another. But he also offers a prayer of blessing for them here at the end. That's what is happening in those final two verses. So let's look at verses 23 and 24. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 24, he begins, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. You might remember back to the first sermon that we preached here in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul gives a very similar message in his greeting when he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In both cases, he's offering grace and peace because he sees grace as the means by which we can have all the blessings of this new identity in Christ that he tells us about throughout especially the first half of Ephesians. And peace, because that is a result of the gospel, peace with God and peace with one another. What Paul does here at the end of Ephesians is offer this blessing for grace and peace to the Ephesians. And what he's doing it really is he's learned it in the tradition of the priests of the Old Testament. Paul is following in the tradition of God's priests giving a blessing to God's people. And we call this a prayer of blessing or at times maybe a benediction. The best known blessing that God gave to the priests is in Numbers chapter 6 verses 24 through 26. And in verse 27 right after it God tells them why he gave this blessing. So that Aaron and the priests could, and here this comes from Ephesians, or, uh, Numbers 6, 27, so that they could put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And here is that ironic blessing in Numbers 6. You may have heard it before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. By show of hands, who's heard that blessing before? Who's, who's maybe been a recipient of that benediction before? God gave his people this special type of prayer so that his ministers could put his name upon his people. And that phrase, put his name upon his people, is just loaded with meaning. But let me put it this way. Through the proclamation of a prayer of blessing or a benediction, God's ministers speak God's reality to God's people and we put his name upon them. Paul's benediction here at the end of Ephesians comes in the tradition of this first blessing that God gave to Aaron and the priests. And so does our benediction at the end of our church services. That's why we do that at the end of each church gathering, to remind you of God's reality. And so I know for some of you, the benediction feels, it kind of means relief. Kids maybe are ready to go. Parents are ready to be done managing kids. Maybe some of you, the Vikings game is going to be calling your name in just a couple of weeks when it's a noon game. You're just going to feel ready to rush out. Sometimes the benediction feels like the end. But let me just encourage you, when the benediction comes each Sunday, rather than see it as the last step before your exit, see it as a way of God's ministers naming God's reality to God's people. And so as it happens, look up, pause, smile, That's actually what it means when God says that he's going to, he wants to lift up his countenance upon them. It's, we receive the smile of God. So pause, look up, smile, and receive God's blessing from God's ministers. We persevere through prayer as recipients of prayer and also as those who offer it in communication with God. 
A second way that we hold fast to our faith is to tell stories of God's faithfulness. And here's where I'm getting that from our text. If you look with me at verses 21 through 22, Paul wrote about sending Tychicus to the Ephesians. He, he, Tychicus, is coming to bring a report about Paul and how Paul is doing so that it would encourage their hearts. Tychicus, Tychicus is clearly a dear man to Paul. He says at, some, at one point that he is a beloved brother and faithful minister. And throughout the New Testament, Paul only gives that level of affirmation to a handful of people, Titus, Timothy, Onesimus, for example. Tychicus is one of them as well. He is more to Paul than just a courier. He's not just a deliverer of a letter. He is a close companion in ministry. Because Paul is such a celebrated person within the New Testament, we can sometimes get this mistaken idea that he's a lone ranger, this sort of go-it-alone hero of the Christian tradition, but that couldn't be more wrong and more different than what the New Testament actually tells us about his ministry. He is always with a team of people, asking people to come to him, sending people out. He is surrounded by partners in ministry. He needed people, and so do we. If you don't have a Tychicus in your life, then I want to encourage you to start taking steps to get one, maybe get more than one. And don't believe the lie that we often tell ourselves, well, they probably don't want to get to know me. Or you might tell yourself, they already have their people. They don't really need another person. Don't believe that lie. Most people need more people. And most people are probably thinking the same things that you are, which means that most people are waiting for someone else to take the initiative. And so you can be that person to take the initiative, to reach out. Why not you? And why not now? It's as simple as just sending a text, inviting someone to go for a walk, maybe join the women for the walk on Saturday, to send a text, maybe invite someone to go for coffee or lunch or for a beer. You don't have to send them a text and ask them to be your Tychicus right away, okay? That might weird them out. Just invite them to spend some time with you, all right? Because if we're going to persevere in the faith, we need our people. We need holistic gospel community in our lives, And the reason that Paul is sending Tychicus here is also really important. Not just his relationship to Paul, but what he's trying to accomplish through Tychicus as he sends him to Ephesus. And we see that in verse 22, that he may encourage their hearts. Earlier in this letter, Paul expressed concern for the Ephesians. He was worried that they might lose heart over Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Paul wants them to be encouraged rather than discouraged. Paul might be in chains, that might be his current reality, but it is for the sake of the gospel that he is in chains, and he is doing just fine. He wants them to know. In fact, when he asks for prayer, he asks for boldness, not a change in circumstance. And so he doesn't want the Ephesians to be concerned for that either. If you want to remain strong in the faith, then share the stories of God's faithfulness with one another. Encourage one another in that way, like Paul is doing through Tychicus here. A couple of weeks ago, Megan Andrakaitis shared about how impactful the Alpha class has been on her life, and as a result, how it gave her opportunities to encourage others in Jesus. I've heard from several of you how encouraging it was to just hear from her and her story of faith. On Easter Sunday, Sarah Evans shared about her own testimony of faith, about how she came to faith, and about how God has seen her through physical pain and physical suffering, and how God has strengthened her in her faith. I have heard from several of you about how encouraging it was to hear Sarah's testimony of faith. 
This is an important practice for God's people to learn how to tell our stories in light of the great story that God is weaving in the world. And this is not new for Paul and Tychicus. It's not new for us today. This is something that God's people have been doing for centuries. For example, if you read through the Psalms, you'll see this over and over. Psalm 44 begins with these words. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have done in their days, in the days of old. Hear this psalmist. He's having his own challenge. He's about to pray to the Lord, asking for relief. But before he does it, he reminds himself, God, I've heard of your faithfulness. The generations before us have told us about all that you've done. And so even though he's concerned about his, his own circumstance, he wants God to bring relief. He maybe even doesn't know if he can trust God's faithfulness. He's remembering. He's heard of God's faithfulness, and that encourages him to come back. That is what stories of God's faithfulness do in our lives. For the Ephesians, it encourages them when they might have lost heart over the difficulty of ministry. For the psalmist, it reminds him that God is faithful so he can come to him and ask for help. For us today, it helps us to remain faithful to God because we see the ways that God is faithful to us. Stories are powerful. They're a powerful reminder for us of what is true in the world. A book series that our family recently enjoyed is the Wingfeather Saga. At the bottom of the website for the Wingfeather Saga, there's in these big, bold capital letters this phrase, the stories are true. And it is their way of saying that even though these are fictional stories, the story behind these books, the story that they're telling is the true story of the world, of our need for redemption, of our need for courage. And one of the themes throughout the books is the importance of remembering our name and our identity. And the Wingfeather children are constantly being exhorted to remember who they are and whose they are. And I won't spoil it and tell you who they are within the story, but just know that their family's name and lineage and identity are really important. And one of the ways that evil in the story is undermining the maker's good purpose in the world is by causing people to forget who they are, forgetting their true identity, and as a result, submitting to the influence of darkness. And then toward the end of the story, there's this powerful exchange that reminds us of the power of stories. Janner, who's the eldest of the Wingfeather children, asks this older and wiser woman, he says, so once someone remembers their true name, they're cured? And she responds, I wish it were so. We all forget from time to time, and so we need each other to tell us our stories. Sometimes a story is the only way back from the darkness. This has been impactful for our family. If you come to our house, you'll see we have this quote above our mantle in our fireplace because of how important stories are to remind us of what is true. It is easy for us to start to believe the lies that the darkness wants to tell us, and so we need one another to tell us our stories, to remind us of the story that God is writing in the world. And this is so important that we're devoting our entire, the theme and all the teaching of our fall retreat to this basic idea. We want to equip you to tell the stories of God's faithfulness in your life. And our goal is that everyone who comes in the retreat will leave with at least one story that they've captured and written down and are able to share with someone else. We will persevere in faith if we have companions in the faith, and especially if those companions tell us the stories of God's faithfulness in their lives. A third way that we persevere in faith is to keep our eyes on Jesus. At the very end of the letter, 
Paul is celebrating their love for Jesus, the love the Ephesians have. And in verse 24, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace here has enabled them to love Jesus, and then they receive an abundance of grace in return for their love for Jesus. And love for Jesus is one of the ways that we persevere in faith. And that happens when we keep our eyes fixed on him, when we continue to remind ourselves of his goodness. Ephesus is a significant church within the New Testament. We read about it a lot. It has a remarkable story. It was planted in the book of Acts, and Paul spends significant time there throughout his ministry. Ephesus had many great leaders in it, including Paul's protege, Timothy. Near the end of Acts, there's a pretty long discourse between Paul and the the Ephesian elders. And here in this letter, at the end, Paul is celebrating their love for Jesus. Ephesus was the sort of church that people would remember its history. They would celebrate its history. They would tell the stories of its history, but it didn't last forever. Eventually, in the book of Revelation, the church in Ephesus would come under criticism for abandoning their love for Jesus. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven different churches that Jesus confronts for seven different reasons. And the first church that's listed is the church here in Ephesus. And first, before Jesus confronts them, though, he celebrates some things that are happening. He affirms some of the things that are happening. He says that he sees several good things, that they, um, he sees their good works, their toil, their patient endurance. They would not bear evil among them, and they would test those who call themselves apostles. He sees the way that they have endured all of this for the name of Jesus and not grown weary. That all sounds pretty good, right? And then he comes with the indictment in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When I started the sermon, I asked you whether there are people you know in your life who have walked away from their faith. And for most of you, even when you think about phrasing it that way, you you might think about someone or probably think about someone who's completely abandoned faith in Jesus through irreligion. They may not even call themselves Christians or want to be associated with Jesus anymore. We know people like that. And for some of you, that is a great fear you have, even for yourself. But let me give you another warning that we see here in this warning to the Ephesians. I want to help you see that we can lose faith by losing our first love through religion, not just irreligion. The church in Ephesus had done a lot of things right. They had continued to endure in the midst of a city that was filled with all sorts of distractions and things that wanted to lead them contrary to Jesus, a city filled with cult prostitution and economic, economic opportunities, many other religions and philosophies that they could adopt and shift to the way that they see the world. And even in that environment, the church in Ephesus had endured. They would not indulge that sort of evil among them. They would conf- confront false teaching, even among those who claim to be apostles but are in fact false teachers. The church in Ephesus would not have been what we might call a watered-down church today. In fact, based on the description that we're giving, given, there probably would be considered a pretty conservative church. They'd probably have an orthodox statement of faith, if you will. But in all of that religion, and focus on fighting against the culture around them, they had come to miss the most important thing. They abandoned the love they had at first. And here's what that means. They had kept the religion of Jesus, but they had lost relationship with Jesus. They were not, risk of, they were not at risk of dissenting from the faith because they had started to worship the duty of their faith. 
And they were, out of, out of fear of abandoning their religion, they had come to abandon their Savior. As a replanted church, we are laying a fresh foundation upon which we can build a healthy church together. And we have to know we could be at risk of that same future. Right now in these early days, it's easier to remain focused on Jesus because we've all been humbled through the process. We're more aware of our need. We have had to go through the painful step of dying to what had been and trusting that God would bring new life in our future. But as we become more established, as we develop layers of institution and organization, it would be easy to start to focus on the religion, on the resistance to the influence of our cultural moment. It would be easy to become focused on just becoming sustainable or just trying to endure. And if all of those become our focus, then we could repeat the pattern of so many churches throughout history. What we see here in the church in Ephesus, forgetting our first love. The most important way for us not to abandon our first love is to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, to continue to remind ourselves of the gospel, the good news that we've received. Through the grace of God, at least as Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, they had experienced the love of Jesus and in response had returned that love. If you don't want to lose your love for Jesus, then keep reminding yourself of his love for you. There's nothing more powerful than seeing his sacrificial love. And nothing will keep you coming back to the love you had at first than remembering the way that he's loved you. And when I say that, it's not just hearing it from others, but experiencing it in community with others, reading about it in God's word, being transformed by his love in the way that our hearts are warmed with affection for him. I recently finished Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities this last spring. I had not read the book before, but I knew the climax of the story because I had heard about it in an illustration for the gospel. In fact, I had used it, maybe some of you remember, as an illustration for the gospel in my own preaching. But now that I've actually read it, it has changed the way I've experienced it. In the story, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, they both look alike, and they're both in love with the same woman named Lucy Manet. Toward the end of the story, Charles is imprisoned in France, and he's sentenced to the death penalty. But through an incredible sacrifice to himself, Sidney Carton actually replaces himself with Charles in prison, and as he receives the guillotine, Charles and Lucy escape France to freedom. And as I heard the story previously, as I've used it even as an illustration, it was impactful, but reading the story for myself, I was more deeply moved by the sacrifice that Sidney Carton made for Charles and Lucy. And after Sidney's death, Lucy and Charles have a son whom they name Sidney as a way of remembering his sacrifice for them. And Sidney himself grows older and has his own children whom he would tell the story of Sidney Carton. And one of the things Charles Dickens says is as he would tell the story, he would do so in a tender and faltering voice. Our love grows deeper in response to the sacrificial love of another. And especially when we see it, experience it, witness it for ourselves, which is why Charles and Lucy named their son Sidney in honor of that sacrifice. And in the same way that Sidney Carton's sacrificial love had such an impact on Charles and Lucy and all future generations of their family, so also we learn to love Jesus most when we fix our eyes upon him and his sacrificial love for us. I asked you at the beginning of the sermon whether you wanted your love for Jesus to last your lifetime. Many of you raised your hands. And as we have seen, this happens by prayer in the Spirit, 
by telling the stories of God's faithfulness and by fixing our eyes on Jesus. We've been warned that we are just as likely to abandon our first love through religion as irreligion. And so we must be aware of both dangers. As we remind ourselves together of Christ's love for us, we will grow in our love for him. And love for Jesus is the only way that we will persevere in our faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.